Glory to Jesus Christ. Glory forever. Welcome back, everybody, to our study of the Evergatinos. And we're picking up this evening with a new hypothesis, number 36. And we're on page 309, if you're following along in the text. And the subtitle is What the Sins of Disobedience and Grumbling Against Our Teachers in the Lord Are. And a Christian should not object to all or justify himself, but should in all cases resist his own will and love reprove, not avoid it. So a lot in this hypothesis about grumbling, murmuring, and, un and being ungrateful. Uh, all things that we probably know very little about. We, we never, we're not big murmurers here or anything like that. So uh, these are always good uh, little reflections when they come up in the fathers, because, uh, I, you know, grumbling and murmuring, uh, we do, you know, not simply in relationship to the council spiritual elders, but I think to a lot of things in life in general, and uh, does have an effect upon us, you know, and whether it's about the church as a whole or the Pope or what's going on, you know, in the culture or with the president or whatever it might be, we can find ourselves wrapped up in this kind of line of thought. And it can really take hold of our emotions and become a source of distraction for us, uh, not only uh, something that keeps us from following the counsel of our spiritual elder. So again, we're on page 309. Uh, from Antiochus. Brethren, we should not grumble in anything that is reasonable, or even about what appears unreasonable to us, but should be obedient and thankful in everything, both to God and to those who give us orders according to God. If we complain in anything, then we will be like the sinful and ungrateful Jews who murmured against the servant of God, as the Holy Scripture says, the people murmured against Moses, and Moses said, your murmuring is not against us, but against God. All who complained perished in the desert because of their grumbling. And uh, we, we see this also in the, the gospel, uh, murmuring uh, against Christ, uh, certainly not only among uh, those in the crowds, but even sometimes among his own disciples about some of the things that he had said. Uh, in particular, when he begins to teach about the Holy Eucharist, uh, it certainly seemed eminently unreasonable to them that he would say such a thing. And, uh, and this led to a murmuring within the hearts of his own disciples. And we know at that point, a great number of them left his company. And, uh, and so it can close us off to hearing a, a word of truth from God. And... Uh, so it's not the unconsequential kind of sin that we would fall into, uh, that it can prevent us from hearing something that can be salvific even for us and, uh, and protect us uh, from taking a path that would lead us to great destruction or into a particular sin. And so the, the author here is pretty careful, though, to, to make some distinctions you know, first of all, that is reasonable, uh, that uh, that we would give it to, to those who have a kind of responsibility for us. And so it's not indiscriminate, uh, as we've heard many times here in the Evergatinos, that uh, those to whom we would choose to uh, 
chooses our spiritual guides that we would seek then to to listen intently to them and not to be willful uh, when we are asked to do things that are perhaps challenging for us or disagreeable in some way or hard to understand at the time what the fruit of that might might be goes on to say their descendants perpetuating the ingratitude and disobedience of their fathers at one time grumbled against the followers of the Lord saying, why do you eat and drink with sinners? Yet at another time, they grumbled against the Savior himself when he told them, I am the living bread which came down from heaven. The Lord said to them, no man can come to me except the Father who has sent me draw him. When he finds that Man, in my opinion, obedient and grateful and not inclined to grumble. The first laborers in the parable grumbled against the last laborers who were invited around the 11th hour, saying, Thou hast made them equal to, unto us. The Lord again responded to them, Friend, I do thee no wrong. Did I not agree with thee for a penny? Take what is thine and go thy way. But whither does he send this friend, where the men of the left-hand portion will be in the eternal fire, which has been prepared for the devil and his angels? This is demonstrated by what follows, namely, that he accuses them of being wicked and envious. Is thine eye evil because I am good? And so by this particular author, Antiochus, we're being drawn in deeply into the, the nature of this kind of murmuring, uh, that it can be a reflection of something far darker. Uh, envy, je jealousy, not wanting others to have what we would have. Uh, so turning a kind of evil eye, if you will, towards others. And uh, rather than keeping one's focus upon what God has given us, and or, or in this case, what the, the uh, day laborers received from from that master uh, if we just step back and even look at that one story uh day laborers really had a, a difficult life that they would gather in the town square and they would have to wait to and hopefully someone would come along with work for them for the day uh in order that they would be able to provide for their families provide a meal and so those who were hired early in the day had the added advantage of not experiencing the anxiety of perhaps not being hired at all, that they knew that they were going to be paid at the end of the day and so be able to provide for their themselves and their families. Whereas those who had to wait and were not hired till late, that they may have had to do less work here, but uh, they did not know the peace of having, you know, gainful employment uh, early in the day. And that's just the, the surface level of things, you know, certainly of, of this parable or the uh, sort of the, the imagery that Christ is using. But in the spiritual life, you know, this can be true as well, that it wouldn't be unusual at times for those who live a disciplined spiritual life. Uh, to find themselves jealous and envious of those who seem to receive certain spiritual blessings from the Lord, even though they may not have labored for as long of a period of time, that they've been given particular gifts by God for a certain reason. 
And so others find themselves resentful of them or, or toward God for blessing them in such a way. And so it becomes very important for us in the spiritual life to keep our focus uh, on what is given to us or what is asked of us, not to be focusing upon others, what they're doing or not doing. Uh, all of these things not only become a distraction, but as we've seen here, can also lead us into some rather grave sin. From Abba Mark, he who secretly mixes his own will up with an obedience that he has been given is an adulterer, as is shown in the wisdom literature. And for a lack of sense, he suffers pains and humiliation, humiliations. Just as the union of water and fire is impossible, so self-justification and humility are contrary to each other. If you wish to be saved, you should love sincere speech and never recklessly despise reproof. True speech changed the brood of vipers and suggested that they flee from the coming wrath. He who gratefully accepts words of truth will welcome God, the word himself. For the Lord said, he that receiveth you receiveth me. So here, you know, Mark takes us a step further, certainly in terms of our understanding of this spiritually, that uh, one who mixes his own will and willfulness up with obedience is uh, compared to an adulterer within the scripture, that there's kind of infidelity in doing this, uh, especially when it comes to our relationship with God. Uh, and because of this, he says, we suffer great pains and humiliations that we, as we've often talked about before, will often believe that we see things with a kind of clarity or greater clarity than others who are seeking to correct us or uh, guide us uh, in, the, in the spiritual life. And whenever we do this, uh, there, again, is kind of infidelity that is at work there. And... Uh, we have to have this capacity uh, in the spiritual life to suspend our own judgment or, uh, you know, set it aside in, in such a way that we're able to be attentive to something that we might not see with perfect clarity, to allow light to shine upon something that might be hidden because of a hard spot or blind spot that we have in the spiritual life. And uh, especially when we are not only dealing with our own weaknesses, but where we are uh, often tempted to see things through a distorted lens or through one of our passions, this becomes even more important uh, to suspend our self-judgment in order to be uh, open to what another is saying, uh, to have a kind of generosity of spirit uh, that allows us to hear even what we perhaps do not want to hear on a certain level that goes against our sensibilities or that challenges us in terms of the way that we are dealing with a situation or that we the way that we're living our life. And uh, yet this becomes very important for us to, to be able to hear the, the word of God that uh, we silence the heart, but also the judgment and the reason in such a way that we can listen on a very deep level 
And you remember we've talked before about the Carthusian, that little quote from the Carthusian uh, book, uh, Carthusian Messalini. Uh, says that silence is allows for us to hear a, uh, God speak a word that is equal to himself, that we uh, put no impediment between ourselves and God when we enter into silence and we allow ourselves to listen on, on the deepest level of our being. And that the, the greater our purity of heart the, the more that we are able to see and hear as well, uh, the more impediments that we remove to that. And so if there is a kind of pridefulness here, uh, a kind of uh, anger that guides the way that we listen to others, that we're often uh, aggressive in our, our speech towards them rather than having a kind of docility. If you remember the root of that word is being, means to be teachable. And so if we lack facility, then we, we may not be able to receive uh, something that God is giving, giving to us, perhaps even from a source that would be surprising to us. And if you've read ahead by chance in some of the coming hypotheses, we're given these really interesting examples of, uh, you know, these great saints being taught something by a little child, or Saint Ephraim the Syrian being taught something by a prostitute in a city that he had entered into. Uh, he had gone on this kind of pilgrimage looking uh, for guidance from someone, a word from someone. And it turns out uh, as he enters into the city, it is this prostitute that he happens to catch sight of and even tries to shame by his gaze, by the way that he looks at her. And she's looking back at him and it finally brings about this uh, discussion between the two of two of them and he's in and uh and she finally says to him at the end well if you know if you were pure of heart you wouldn't be gazing at me in the way that you are you know with this kind of searching look uh so uh he he sees something within himself that he did not expect to see and and is taught by somebody he didn't expect to be taught by Okay, next paragraph. A sinner who is reproved in a godly way by the faithful is like the paralytic who, having been lowered from the roof, received forgiveness by virtue of the faith of those who carried him. He who hates reproofs shows that he willfully lingers in his passion. He who loves reproofs is acting rationally. So isn't that an interesting way of phrasing it, is acting rationally, that we can cling to our reason, we can cling to our judgment in such a way that we are incapable of receiving uh, guidance in a fuller truth. And so a person who's willing and able to receive reproof is more like one who's the, like the paralytic who's being brought by his friends to Christ and drop down into his midst, unable to bring himself, uh, he's brought by others. And in similar ways in our spiritual life, sometimes others bring us to Christ when we are not able to bring ourselves or when we are not able to see a certain truth 
uh, they are able to see something about our character, our, our judgment, the way that we are engaging others, the way we're praying or not praying, and be able to subtly point that out for us. And uh, we often are going to be blind, uh, I think, to the passions that we are most attached to. And so it, we are going to need reproof in some form or another because of that almost natural blindness that is tied to our, our particular passions. Because we want them so much, we are going to close our eyes and our ears to what others say to us or what they point out to us. And then finally from Abba Mark, just as those who sail on the sea gratefully enduring the scorching of the sun, so also those who hate vice love reproof. For the sun is opposed to the winds, while reproof is opposed to the passions. He who does not wish to be corrected by the commandments and admonitions of Holy Scripture will be compelled to walk by the horsewhip and the goad. If he is not made sober by these, then he will be led by the muzzle and the bit, which they will put on his jaws. And so re reproof is actually, as Mark sees it, the, the gentlest uh, kind of approach here. And uh, for those who really have a love for virtue, they are going, in a sense, to rejoice over it in a similar way that those who are on the sea are going to rejoice at sunny skies, that they know that they're not going to be tossed about by the waves because of strong winds or because of storms. And so when we receive reproof, uh, then we should see it as, you know, God guiding us gently and uh, and, you know, what is put forward here uh, in the last part of the paragraph, if we aren't willing to be challenged by or corrected by, this, by the scriptures, by the commandments uh, of God, then things will uh, manifest themselves in our lives to open our eyes, to jar us back uh, uh, to where we need to be, you know, to bring us to our senses, as it were, sort of like the, the story, the son in the story of the prodigal son, you know, he's brought to dire straits uh, because of the choice that he makes and his leaving of his father and he's brought to his senses, we are told, by the poverty that he experiences. And sometimes that's true that we're allowed to experience the consequence of our sin or our attachment to certain passions uh, in order then that we might be reproved by them when we're not willing or able to be uh, corrected by the scriptures themselves. Anything from this section uh, from Abba Mark or, or the previous paragraph? Okay, here's one comes up from uh, Eric. In terms of grumbling, I was listening today to a podcast on joy, and the speaker pointed out that the early Christians did not even complain about Nero, who took Christians, covered them with tar, and lit them to shed light on his parties, but kept their focus on God and their own faith and cultivating joy in the midst of persecution. A good lesson for us today 
in the hostile environment we live in where Christians tend to get distracted by their grumbling over the circumstances. You know, I think that's true. You know, when one is persecuted for one's faith, then uh, one is not going to hold on to uh, attachments to the things of this world. You know, when one's faith could cost one, one their life, then they're less likely to cling to uh, passing attachments. And, uh, and so, you know, when we live in a time where Christianity is accepted, I think then we, we begin to focus on certain things that really have nothing to do with Christianity or Christ at all and find ourselves grumbling and complaining about things that are even extraordinary gifts from the hand of God that we receive every single day of our life. And uh, so, uh, you know, what takes the place of this period of martyrdom is then the ascetic life emerges, you know, and in order to uh, provide us a means to uh, move away from the passions and this willfulness that we fall into as human beings, that it becomes sort of the, the white martyrdom, if you will, that uh, we order the, the passions and our appetites and uh, our will toward God uh, by developing a life of prayer, the study of scriptures, uh, by exercising our faith on a very deep level. And it's when we turn away from that, though, I think we fall into what you know, Mark mentions in that middle paragraph, or, or, or I'm sorry, the last part of that last paragraph, that it's often only the circumstances of life. And sometimes even those can't uh, awaken us to the cause of them. And that's when things get are, get very dark. You know, I think when the conscience has been silenced and even its reproof does not draw us back to God. And finally, from St. Maximus, just as sin is the work of disobedience, so also is virtue the work of obedience. And just as disobedience is followed by a transgression from the commandments, and the separation from the giver of the commandments, so also obedience is followed by the implementation of the commandments and uninterrupted union through love with the giver of the commandments. He who transgresses a commandment through disobedience and perpetuates a sin separates himself from union through love of the giver of the commandments. So, you know, obedience is something that brings the, one of the greatest fruits for us in the spiritual life. It's not something that leads us to slavery, but rather to freedom, to know the fullness of God's love. And uh, I've been reading a lot from this uh, Russian author Paul Evdekimov, and he talks about the, the three uh, vows or the evangelical councils, poverty, chastity, and obedience as being our particular path to freedom. 
And uh, often we don't see them in such a way that we see them as taking something from us, uh, you know, taking our freedom to live as we would like, rather than allowing us to be fully and truly obedient to God and having him to be the focus of our life, our actions, our thoughts, and our deeds, and so drawing us into greater union with him. And on Saturday night, I mentioned that, you know, over this past year in particular, you know, a shift in my thinking about uh, constancy in the spiritual life, but also desire, uh, especially when we went through Isaac the Syrian, uh, I think coming to see that with greater clarity too, that having a desire and a love for virtue and the things of God are, is what draws us on swiftly to that union and communion with him. And uh, it's a lack of desire and self-focus uh, that keeps us bound and stuck where we are and perhaps struggling with passions that we've struggled with for decades of our life. And... Uh, and so it's not only, you know, a matter of discipline that will pull us out of those things, but it has to be something greater, a love for God and a love for his word, a love for his commandments, knowing that in everything that he calls us to, he's drawing us into this deep union and communion with him. If we're simply looking at you know, whether it's the commandments or the Beatitudes or any of the other teachings of Christ as, you know, these harsh demands, uh, then it's unlikely that we'll experience the fruit of them in the way that Christ desires. Because there's always going to be some part of ourselves that we hold back in living these commandments out or giving our, our hearts over to them fully. And so we, uh, if you remember what St. Pais is saying, you know, we're not simply trying to avoid sin. That's not the height of Christianity, uh, avoiding sin. It's something far greater. It's being drawn into the eternal love of God, into a participation in the life of the Trinity. This is what we are called to and invited to and what's been made possible for us. And so if we limit ourselves, you know, we're, we're, we're remaining earthbound in that sense. And we're treating the, the, the gospels and the commandments in a kind of materialistic fashion. You know, it's only about how we are, are living our life here. And even in our fidelity to them, we can lose sight of God and the love of God. And underneath that can be a kind of resentment toward God uh, or passive aggression. I think we only need to look at our human relationships to, to see that, that we can remain faithful in, in our job or relationships, friendships, whatever they might be, and, but be begrudging in the gift of ourselves and not see what we are being given by God in and through these things, the blessings that have been bestowed upon us. And so we lose that gratitude that was talked about in the first pages uh, or first paragraphs of, of this hypothesis. So any final thoughts about this particular hypothesis? Any other comments?
Okay. Hypothesis 37. Uh, and so we're going to be drawn into this in a far deeper way now uh, in terms of how it affects our relationships, uh, especially with those that we've entrusted ourselves to, those who are our teachers, and see how it can affect uh, that relationship with them when we find ourselves grumbling against them or even condemning them. From the Durant Con. Once upon a time, there lived an anchorite. <laughs> I don't know why that strikes me funny, but it almost sounds like a, a story, you know, a children's story. Once upon a time, there lived an anchorite uh, who had great discernment. He wanted to remain in one of the kalia or cells where huts and dwellings scattered in the most remote parts of the Egyptian desert, where anchorites and their disciples dwelled in solitary isolation. But for the moment, he was unable to find a cell. Another elder, on hearing of the anchorite, since he had a secluded cell that was vacant, invited him to stay in that cell until he could find another one. The anchorite went and occupied it. Some of those living in the area went to see him, being a newcomer, and each took him what he could, and the anchorite received them and offered them hospitality. The elder who had given him the cell began to envy him, to malign him and to say, though I've been living here many years in severe asceticism, nonetheless, no one comes to me, yet this imposter has been here just a few days, and look how many visitors he has. Thereupon he said to his disciple, go tell him, leave right away because I have need of the cell. <laughs> uh, it was funny when I, I first read through these that uh, it was surprising that the things are sort of reversed in some of these stories, that it is the fidelity of the disciple uh, to instruction that can also can convert the heart of, of the elder uh, to reveal a certain truth to him as well. And so we, we see an elder here being overcome by envy, that here is a, a young anchorite being treated with this largesse, given you know, all these supports early on uh, in, in the spiritual battle, where he's been living this severe uh, asceticism for many years. And so even becomes so angry that he takes back the gift or wants to take back the gift that he gave to this young anchorite. The disciple went to the anchorite and told him, my elder asked, how are you doing? Pray for me, he replied, because my stomach is giving me trouble. When the disciple returned to his cell, he said to the elder who had sent him, the elder told me that he is looking for another cell and is going to leave. <laughs> so he's being taught in a number of ways here. His own disciple is not really telling this new anchorite uh, what, what his elder uh, had instructed him to tell him. Two days later, the elder said again to his disciple, go and tell him that if he does not leave the cell, I will come and chase him away with a stick. The disciple went to the anchorite and said to him, my elder heard that you were ill and he is upset. He sent me to visit you. The anchorite replied to him, tell him that by his prayers, I have been getting better. 
So the disciple returned to his elder and said, the anchorite says, God willing, I'm going to leave by Sunday. When Sunday came, the anchorite had not left the cell. The elder took a stick and went to thrash him and chase him away. But the disciple said to him as he was departing, I can run ahead, elder, in case there are any people there who might be scandalized. The elder allowed him to do so, and the disciple, running ahead, told the anchorite, my elder is coming to console you and take you into his cell. As soon as he heard of the elder's love, the anchorite went out to meet him. Do not try, uh, I'm sorry, went out to meet him. And when he saw him, he made a prostration from a distance and said to him, do not trouble yourself, father. I'm coming to your holiness. God, seeing the good intention behind the disciples' deed, moved the heart of his Abba to compunction. Throwing down his staff, he ran to embrace the anchorite. He kissed him and led him off to his cell, uh, realizing that he had not heard anything of what the elder had said against him. When they reached the cell, he asked his disciple, you did not tell him any of the things I said to you, did you? No, he replied. No, replied the disciple. When he heard this, the elder rejoiced, realizing that his envy was of the devil. He put the anchorite at ease and looked after him. Afterwards, he fell at his feet, the feet of his disciples, saying to him, you should now be the elder and I should be your disciple, since it is by your doing that both our souls have been saved. So, it's a great story. I've before reading the Evergatinos, I'd never heard this before. Uh, but uh, he so the the disciple becomes the source of salvation for both, and the wisdom with that he has in uh, allowing this situation to unfold in the way that it did. It's not he and even that last part of running to the new anchorite and not telling him, run away, my master's coming to beat you, but rather telling him, you know, my master's coming to show you love, to invite you into a cell that he could care for you in, in your illness and your weakness. So much so that the new anchorite, you know, makes this prostration before him, you know, this act of reverence enough to penetrate the heart of the elder as well as in his, his envy and bring about his conversion. And so, you know, a beautiful story there and uh, speaks to us certainly of, of the providence of God, uh, but, you know, the how wisdom can come to us in unexpected ways. And also, I think, is a powerful example for us as well. You know, it's it becomes uh, this wonderful example of being a, a, a kind of peacemaker. You know, that this young disciple had this capacity to see the devil at work there and how he could have destroyed both of these men. You know, had drawn, he could have drawn them into contention with each other and uh, it could have ruined them both spiritually. And in his wisdom, he was able to act as this peacemaker in this very subtle fashion and to guide and direct both of them without either of them knowing what he was doing. 
And, you know, what a wonderful example that is too. You know, there's no condescension in him at all in the way that he guides and directs others. And what a wonderful that example that is, is of well, we see his, not only his wisdom there, but his purity of heart that, you know, that here with his elder who, who was acting in the scandalous way, you know, he doesn't re rebuke him. He doesn't draw uh, attention to him in the eyes of the other monks in order to humiliate him and to ruin his reputation. But he he engages in this uh, set of circumstances in such a way that he was able to protect both men's virtue. So just a beautiful story. This would be a, a great one to highlight and and reread. It's on so many different levels. It's extraordinary. Eric writes, doesn't this just contradict everything we've heard previously about the value and importance of un unalloyed obedience? Well, I think one could say that except where it is reasonable, uh, where we are told in those first paragraphs that the wisdom of that disciple and his holiness was such that he was able to see the greater truth there that was from God, that both of these men were in jeopardy and that love trumps, uh, you know, this, you know, obedience that he could have shown or feigned uh, in relationship with his elder. That love revealed something far greater to him. And uh, this is why that relationship between disciple and elder is so important. And we find this emphasized over and over again, that it's, you know, it's not a functional relationship. He's not, you know, given this position of being uh, head of human formation at a seminary, you know, and, uh, you know, but, but he has a relationship. They both have a relationship with each other that is to be rooted in this love and desire for the salvation of each, of gratitude, uh, of true humility. You know, there's no ego involved uh, to be involved in either direction. And, you know, there's so little ego there on the part of this young disciple that there's no desire that he has to elevate himself on an emotional level and all these other levels that he could have, you know, by bringing down his master, by revealing the, the truth of his scandalous uh, an envious attitude. Carol. Um, my only thought was it reminds me of our last reading in Climacus, mm -hmm. where he emphasized at the end that being truthful is essential and most important. And if you have purity of heart, mm -hmm. then and only then can you stray from that if you need to. Very good. Yeah, I'd, I'd forgotten that. And, uh, but that's right. You know, that uh, that was a hard step for us to read online. And because immediately all of those uh, reasonable objections come forward. And so Climacus finally at the end says, well, if you have perfect purity of heart, then 
you can discern whether or not it's necessary. And clearly this young disciple had this purity of heart that allowed him to see the greater truth that was involved. It's wonderful how these two work together, the Evergetinos and Climacus, going back and forth between them. They almost, it's uncanny how they sort of speak to each other often. Okay, any others before we move on to St. Ephraim? Oh, wait, no, we're on number two, is that correct? The bottom of the page there? Okay. One of the elders related that there once lived an elder who was given to drinking. He would spend the day weaving a mat in his cell. In the evening, he would sell his handiwork in the village and spend whatever he earned on wine. After some time, a brother went to stay with him as his disciple. He too would spend the whole day weaving a mat, which the elder would sell, using the proceeds from the handiwork of both of them for wine to drink. For the disciple, he would bring only a little bread late in the evening. This went on for three years without the disciple speaking back to him or protesting in any way. One day, the disciple said to himself, I am poorly clad and eat my bread in great deprivation. I will get up and leave this place. But he thought to himself again, where can I go? Let me stay here since I am living the common life for the sake of God. As he was entertaining these thoughts, an angel of the Lord appeared before him and said, do not go away. For tomorrow I will visit you. The following day, therefore, the disciples said to the elder, Father, please do not go anywhere today, for my own are coming to take me away. And when the time came for the elder to leave as usual for the village, he said to the disciple, My son, it looks as if they are not coming today, since they are late. Yes, Abba, for sure they are coming. And while he was speaking with his elder, he fell asleep in the Lord. Seeing this, the elder began to weep and say, Alas, my son, for I've been living negligently for many years, whereas you have saved your soul in a short space of time through patient endurance. Thereafter, he lived soberly and became like a novice himself. So, you know, when we read through these, we have to have this sense that they're being presented to us in this way for a reason, that precisely to prevent us from placing ourselves in the position of the one who does not want to be grumbled against, and that we are sort of the wise elder. And so what we are presented with is a series of stories where it is actually the novice uh, or the young disciple who becomes the one who is truly the master, the instructor in the way of truth. And, you know, what is revealed to us here is the importance of humility and purity of heart, innocence, a kind of angelic life rather than old age, you know, having a white beard or white hair, you know, or length of time in a monastery. 
that none of these things are a guarantee of the virtues that are needed that you know somebody's lived in a monastery can be become jaded or you know filled with you know aggression you know if certain passions are unchecked and so we're presented with these series of of stories that don't allow us to go there and that humble us in the reading of them uh to say that you know that we have to be open to receive correction and guidance again from wherever it comes and even from the most unexpected sources and perhaps from those in positions that you know on the surface might seem not to warrant our respect or our consideration and so here a novice or a young disciple uh, again becomes the the vehicle to great conversion and the line that sort of stands out for me here is that uh, my own are coming to take me away that you know he was angelic in his life that he had become it was free from the passions in such a way that he was already living the angelic life he was not being driven by the things of this world or clinging to the things of this world including his own his own judgment and so his perseverance you know throughout these years of deprivation uh had even though his his first thought was that i should leave the fact that he catches himself in the temptation and says no i've come here not to be served but for for the sake of god and so you know while i experience deprivation this does not diminish what god might be doing in and through it and so i will stay right where i am and uh it's there you know that he reveals or what is revealed to us the the depth and the perfection uh, of his virtue and his freedom from the passions and so he becomes like the angel that is sent to him and then uh leaves this world which you know falls asleep in the lord to such an extent uh, you know in in such an odor of, of of sanctity that it it moves this elder you know to his depths that he then from that point on becomes like a novice in the way that he leads his life Again, you know, any one of these stories, you know, could be fruitful for reflection for the entire season of Lent for us. You know, if we're thinking about our own life and, and even simply in terms of our responsiveness to God and the, the movement uh, of his grace within our life or how he guides us from day to day and moment to moment. Any uh, commentary before we move on to St. Ephraim? Okay. Those who live the monastic life, brethren, should not be disobedient or in any way contradict their teachers and the Lord, but should behave with great humility before God and men. If it so happens that an elder preaches virtue by words alone, but neglects to put them into practice, let us not for this reason give the devil opportunity to divert our souls from this end. But let us call to mind the Lord who said, the scribes and the Pharisees sit in Moses' seat. 
All therefore, whatsoever they bid you do, that do, but do not ye after their works, for they say and do not. So a little bit more challenging that we are to listen to the truth and embrace it simply uh, because it is the truth and let ourselves keep our eyes fixed upon that and to be guided by that. Uh, even when it comes forth from the man or the woman who's not living it. And, you know, it's a hard thing to do for them. We, and for us, we know that if we aren't living it, it does not bear fruit in our lives. If we're just, you know, preaching about it, but not embracing it. But for those who hear it and embrace it in a spirit of humility and love of God, it can bear enormous fruit. And so we don't want to be drawn along this path with that we detract from the character of others because we know that about them. And we want to keep our eyes fixed upon the truth of the word that we are hearing. And uh, that takes you know, a great deal of discernment and prayerfulness on our part. Uh, there has to be a love of the truth there and a love of the Lord and humility in regards to how we look at others, uh, understanding that God can use even the most unlikely, again, of characters to guide us in the spiritual life. And so we have to be slow in our judgment in that regard so that it doesn't become an impediment to us and blind us. And the Apostle Peter also exhorts us, be subject not only to the good and gentle, but also to the froward, for this is acceptable with God. If a man for conscience toward God endure grief, suffering, wrong, suffering wrongfully. Let me read that again. I'm sorry. I Be subject not only to the good and gentle, but also to the froward, for this is acceptable with God. If a man for conscience toward God endure grief and suffering wrongfully. So we're to be subject not only to those who treat us well and who are living a virtuous and good life, but even those who've turned away from it in their life. And, uh, you know, that there is a kind of blessing there where we listen to the con our conscience that God has given to us and allow that to guide us rather than the external actions of others. And so we'll endure grief and we'll endure suffering that might even come at the hands of others uh, simply to hold on to the truth. For what glory is it if when ye be buffeted for your faults, ye shall take it patiently? But if when you do well and suffer for it, you take it patiently, this is acceptable to God. For even hereunto were ye called, because Christ also suffered for us, leaving us an example that the, ye should follow his steps, who did not sin, neither was guile found in his mouth, who when he was reviled, reviled not again, when he suffered he threatened not, but committed himself to him that judges righteously. 
Brethren, you also have the prophet Samuel as an example of humility, for he did not act pridefully against the priest Eli, even though he had heard so much concerning him from God, but remained humbly under his authority. So, you know, what is special about express, of, of receiving reproof when you have done wrong? You know, that the greater virtue is to uh, receive that reproof, uh, even when there is no awareness of, of, of sin within us. And, you know, on some level, we have to understand that, uh, as we heard from Climacus, I think it was too, that, you know, that we sin, I don't think it was Climacus, it was another saying, I'm sorry, but that we sin perfectly in a day, you know, that there we sin constantly was the word. And so even when we do not see it, and we seem to be living a just life, and when a reproof seems to come to us unjustly, that what we hold on to is the image of the perfect one, of Christ, the truly innocent one, uh, who for love of God and to do his will suffers all, all that he does in order to leave us an example, that the reproof that we receive uh, can be not only the, for the cleansing of our sin, but the perfecting of our virtue. And so whatever the circumstances might be, that wisdom and humility would lead us to accept it and uh, to allow it to, to, to work upon our hearts. Now, again, you know, this, it has to be received in, I think, the way that Ephraim and the others are putting it forward here to us. So, you know, if we simply receive these things or, you know, uh, with a kind of resentment, you know, that we're being tripped as, uh, treated as, you know, uh, oh, we're being, you know, whipped and abused, you know, th that has very little fruit for us. I think, again, it has to be with the sense of desire for our own salvation, but also the salvation of others, where we've come to a point where humility has so shaped us that we don't make judgments at all about others or ourselves, that we keep our focus upon God and the things of God. And, you know, this is, again, it's not something that you're going to read in books, except something like the Ever Catinos, uh, that it's something, a, a kind of knowledge that comes through experience, as it did for, for these monks, that uh, a wisdom emerges, an understanding emerges that there, God's grace is active, and his truth is active and transformative, even through imperfect instruments. And, uh, and we cannot be deluded that no matter how virtuous we might be, uh, that we've somehow are not in need of that. And, you know, I think whenever we go through a hard time, there can be this part of us that rises up and complaint, you know, 
I'm being treated unjustly, you know, for this. And on, on some level that can be true, but uh, it doesn't change the fact of all of what uh, Ephraim is talking about here, you know, in regards to freeing us from our attachment uh, either to our passions or the things that lead to our passions, or that it can be for the perfecting of our, our virtue. That even something like the crosses in our life or something such as reproof now by what Christ has done on the cross has been transformed. That all things can be made to work for the good of those who love God, including something such as this, the poor treatment and reproof of others, even when it seems to be unjust. Let us therefore, beloved, become worthy of our salvation, and let us be ready to make a prostration for any word that we might hear, and above all, from our superior in the Lord. For just as water quenches a fire, so a sincere prostration quenches anger and banishes wrath. Let yourself be persuaded by the captain of 50 in the time of the prophet Elias who propitiated the prophet by his humility and together with his companions was preserved from the prophet's wrath. Be obedient, therefore, beloved, to your superior in all things for the Lord's sake, and keep his words unto the end, disdaining not even a single word that comes from his mouth. Then he who said, where two or three are gathered together in my name, there I am in the midst of them, will always be with you. Beloved, if our abbots err before us, which I pray may not happen, let us be obedient to them with a good conscience and serve them as ones who serve the Lord and not men, knowing that we will receive our reward from the Lord. And so, you know, what I was talking about before about letting go of judgment altogether of others as well as ourselves uh, as being very important here, of keeping our eyes fixed upon the Lord, fixed upon the cross, and the love that has been given to us, and allow that to be drawing us forward. Because it's only in doing this that I think we can act like these young novices and disciples in the previous stories, that, you know, our actions can elevate not only ourselves, but others. If there's true love there, if there's true humility there, then it's only going to seek the good of the other. It's not going uh, to be moved to anger or hatred towards them. And, you know, again, this is something that only comes about by the grace of God. You know, it's a gift of God. But I think in terms of cultivating it in our spiritual life through asceticism, it is you know, our willingness in small ways to set aside our own will or private judgment to try to foster this kind of generosity of spirit towards others. Uh, that we, when we're challenged in a greater fashion, we might be able to respond in the way that we've heard. Carol. 
Um, I'm not sure if this is relevant or not, but I was thinking about how repugnant this, this and how challenging and how hard it is to hear, you know, when you think about the circumstances that we have to set aside our judgment and assent to, not only with our minds, but with our hearts. And I was thinking of that reading, and it was the reading from Mass today, of Naaman, who wanted to be cured of his leprosy. And he's told, you need to go bathe in this nasty river, and not even once, but seven times. And he's indignant. He says, you know, this doesn't make any sense to me. And he has to suspend his judgment, you you know, be humble, be obedient, and do it. And through that, he's cleansed. Yeah. Very good. Perfect example. Uh, You know, why would I come here or have to come all the way here? You know, don't we have, you know, purifying waters where, you know, where we come from? Why should I have to do that? And, uh, yeah, often that is, you know, the feeling within our own hearts. And we can wonder, you know, what in the world is God doing? And and similarly, you know, I think drawing what feels like he's drawing us into this kind of nasty uh, kind of setting, you know, that doesn't seem to promise to be uh, something that's going to be fruitful for us or comfortable or what we expected, uh, what we desire. And yet in and through it, God can uh, make certain things emerge, either the uh, passions that we struggle with are, are still attached to, or again, a perfecting of our virtue, or in and through these things even to bring about blessings for us that we would never have imagined or thought possible of being put, you know, in a a certain set of circumstances that from the surface wouldn't seem very appealing to us. And um, I don't want to speak about myself too much here, but, you know, when I first drove into the neighborhood in Duquesne, (laughs) here in Duquesne, my, you know, my first thought was like, oh, my gosh, you know, where are, are they sending me? Because uh, it's a rough neighborhood. And uh, and then when I got into the house and saw how much work, it, how rough it was and how much work it needed to, you know, my and immediately there were parts of me that recoiled. And uh, and uh it's sort of interesting, you know, what unfolds over the course of time, these, again, unexpected blessings, the people that you're exposed to, the challenges even that you're exposed to, and what they bring forward from your own heart, the ways that you're tested uh, and stretched beyond what you thought your own personal strength would allow. And you see the action of God's grace in your life in a way that you've never been have before because you're being asked to do certain things that are difficult or make you step out of a comfort zone uh, or that you've never done before and uh, or engaging personalities that are very different from your own then you you know see all these places within you that where there needs to be growth greater generosity and uh over the course of time god can do great things and you know we we are so focused 
again on you know pr production or you know producing things that we think are fruitful or good spiritually accomplishing you know works in our own eyes that we think are for god or godly and uh and we can we can approach the church and the practice of the faith in a, a kind of a corp with a corporate mentality you know business uh looking at the church with a kind of business-like attitude where actually god will work in these very subtle hidden ways in our lives or like a seed buried in the ground where you have no idea what's you know uh, going to be produced and it gradually breaks apart and burst into growth and uh i think you know over the generations you know that we've can, we can have very often lost sight i think of this aspect of the gospel and really what points us to the cross that certainly nobody would have thought that uh, somebody crucified as a criminal you know, on a, a torture device, you know, that this would bring about the, the redemption of the world, the outpouring of the love of God, the spirit of love, you know, that, uh, uh, you know, uh, what, what is the line that he says that, uh, that the spirit will be, you know, sent and oh, how I wish it was burning already. What's the phrase? Can somebody help me out there? I'm, my mind's a little foggy tonight. Can anybody remember? You mean like I have come to set the world on fire and how I wish it were all Yes, there. thank you so much. I'm sorry. My, um, uh, it's this stupid daylight savings time. It has me muddy headed. Uh, yes, right. So I've come to set fire on earth and oh, how I wish it was already burning that it's you know he's longing for this moment where his love will no longer have to be constrained and can be let loose as it were upon the wood of the cross and uh and then you know consume the sin of the world but also consume us in a way in the sense that we are, are purified and then so elevated to to experience and participate in the very in this very love of the kingdom and uh but nobody certainly looking at that would have expected expected that uh it's you know curious on in the latin rite you know when on the feast of the uh exaltation of the cross uh, somebody help me out again here. What is it that we sing? Uh, this is the wood of the cross upon which hung the savior of the world. Come, let us worship. And, you know, but the, the cross was, would be like for us, the execute, uh, the electric chair. Uh, and, and here we are, you know, in faith, you know, singing this praise of it and venerating it kissing it you know to manifest that or in the eastern right you know making these profound prostrations before it acknowledging that this is how god has shown his love and has brought about our our redemption and yet in so many ways we we cling to i think what is opposite of the attitude as carol was saying in our last comment there's something about 
this that is so repulsive that we we shrink back and you know all those reasonable excuses come to mind that you know where we want to say no to it rather than seeing god driving drawing us into something far greater and so not only do we have to suspend judgment, but in some ways we have to be willing to let it go altogether and allow ourselves to be drawn forward by the gift of faith. And we have to remember that faith is a kind of knowing, a comprehending of things divine. And it, it's likely to go, it's why John of the Cross describes it as dark and obscure, that it goes beyond the limits and confines of reason and intellect. And we are drawn into the wisdom and the truth of God himself. And our willingness to allow ourselves to be drawn into that is never going to be an easy thing. To find ourselves walking in the dark with nothing to hold on to except this faith in God and our hope in his promises and our love for him uh, we allow ourselves to be drawn into something that is beyond our understanding, but that is transformative. And, you know, these little stories that we've read tonight really bring home the truth of that in a powerful way. You know, when, we, when you first start reading them, you think, no way, there's no way I would do, the, do that. I'd, I'd walk away in a moment from it. And, uh, and and it's convicting when you see the real power of it. And it's convicting not because of the story alone, but because of what the story is attached to, the greater truth of what is revealed to us in Christ and in the cross and in the gospel. That uh, in so many ways, these monks were living icons of the gospel. And they, they bring home, you know, that truth that is jarring to us that wakes us up you know it's the reading them is like a, having a bucket of cold water thrown on you it can be a bracing experience you know it's what was that little thing people were doing it was like a campaign for a certain disease i can't remember where everybody was dumping bucket of cold water ALS. over top it was for well, als that's right yeah and nothing against that of course but you know, it's, you know, a bucket of cold water of us, you know, sort of to wake us up to, you know, to sensitize us to this terrible affliction. And then in that awakening, you know, create within us a desire to respond and, you know, to support research and all, uh, you know, other kinds of things that are tied to it. And, you know, this is how these stories should function for us in a sense, you know, in terms of awakening us to you know something that is extraordinary you know both the ugliness of sin but the, the the beauty of god's love and the beauty of virtue okay so we're, we're a little over time there sorry about that folks and uh we'll stop there again it's that daylight savings time it's got me all messed up here uh hopefully that'll I don't know. I hope we move away from that. I don't know if anybody else is like that, but I found myself dragging, especially on a Sunday. We lose it on a Saturday night. I could barely get through liturgy having to sing it. I thought I was going to pass out. So 
enough of that. Why don't we close again with the Our Father, in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Amen. The Lord be with you. May Almighty God bless you, the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit. Amen. Go in peace. Thanks be to God. God.